Good evening. If you are visiting with us tonight, we want you to know that you are our honored guest. We want you to feel welcome. We hope that you'll give us an opportunity to meet you and to get to know you better. What a blessing it was to, to hear Daniel Nordstrom this morning. And we're so blessed to have him and his family here with us. What an incredible job he did uh, bringing the message this morning. I'll go ahead and tell you that I don't have any life experiences that top out over 1,000 miles per hour. But I'll share one with you here in a moment that has a factor of speed. And if you want to call it, I can light the afterburners too. We'll get into that in a moment. I'm really honored to be able to speak to you tonight, and I appreciate the opportunity from the elders to do so. But you know, we should all be thankful for the many opportunities that we have uh, to serve God, to help grow his kingdom here with this family. This week, we certainly need to be mindful and praying for uh, the team in El Salvador. Had an opportunity to speak to David Shannon just this afternoon. I know their campaign will be starting in earnest tonight as they've started their, uh, uh, their gospel meeting. They've all arrived safely with all of their belongings. And so we should just be prayerful that the success of that mission this week is that souls can be reached. And that the service they can provide to others will show the love of Christ. On that note, it also makes me think of how encouraged I am by our young people. It's encouraging because... There's more than a dozen, I think, that are actually attending this mission trip in El Salvador. And that's just indicative of their heart. We're thankful for Philip and the, the work he does with our youth. But it's impressive and it's encouraging to see how, how bold they are in their faith. And that they're not afraid to share the good news of Christ with their friends. Tonight we're going to be studying the account of the prophet Jonah. So if you have your Bibles... You can be turning there to the book of Jonah in the Old Testament. We won't have slides tonight. But as you're doing that, let me ask you a question. You ever had that moment in life when you needed to react to something quickly and you just freeze? You know what I'm talking about. It's that moment when the glass of milk is too close to the edge of the counter. It begins to slip off. You're only a step away. If you just simply reach out, you can save it. But you freeze. And you know the result, you have a mess to clean up. I had a situation like that in my life. I'll never forget it. It was long ago, about junior high. And contrary to what you might think about my build and my stature, I actually played on the football team. I was no Shannon Buckner and I didn't set any state records, but I had my opportunities to play. And I'll never forget this event. It was the game where we hosted the Crosstown Rival. They were coming to our home turf to play. It was that kind of event where the entire student body was engaged in a pep rally. And the stands were unusually full with all of the student body, all of my friends and fans that were there to see us. I got my opportunity to play in the game. It was kind of late in the game, and I'm sure it's because we probably had a commanding lead at the time. But I'll never forget as the coach pulled me to the sideline, he pulls me in close by the face mask and he says, Williams, all we're trying to do is protect the lead. Don't do anything crazy and just don't let him score. I thought, no problem, coach. But as I entered the field of play, I thought, but I've got one better. You see, I've been watching the quarterback the entire game. I knew who his favorite receiver was. And so as we lined up on defense, I played free safety. And on the very next play, I kind of cheated to the side of the field where that receiver was. There was a chance he's going to be throwing the ball right there. Sure enough, as the ball was snapped, I caught the eyes of the quarterback and knew exactly where he was going to throw it. I moved into position, 
I made the interception. I tucked the ball under my arm. I turned on the afterburners and the jets were on. <laughs> I was sailing towards the end zone and nothing but blue skies. I got past the line of scrimmage. I turned around and I looked back to see who was giving chase. And sure enough, there wasn't anybody within 20 yards. I turned back around, focused my eyes on the end zone. I picked up my sprint and I'm thinking, what a glorious moment this was going to be. And I get to celebrate the touchdown and I get to put the game away for good. And then it happened. Somewhere about the 10 yard line, I don't know if it was because the shoes I had on that day had a blowout, or if the guy who painted the lines that day put an extra coat of paint on. The next step I took, I found myself face down on the turf at the five yard line. And that's when it happened. I froze. I couldn't move. It didn't matter what my mind was telling my body to do, I simply could not get up. I was saying, get up, scramble, crawl, do anything to cross the end zone. But I froze. I couldn't move. It didn't take long for the rest of the team to catch up with me. And well, I'm sorry to say that uh, I found myself at the bottom of a pile on the five yard line and I never scored the touchdown. I'm sure none of you have ever experienced a situation quite that humiliating, but maybe you can relate to a time in, the, in your life when you simply could do nothing under your own power to change the outcome of the situation. But I've got news for, for those of us who may feel like we've had an epic failure in those times. It's the fact that when we freeze up, it's actually a reaction in a certain moment. That's one of the three responses that occurs when our body's natural defense system takes over in a stressful situation. Psychologists and stress experts will actually refer to this reaction as the fight, flight, or freeze response. You may have more commonly heard it referred to as the fight or flight. It's our body's way of reacting to unwelcome dangers and stresses. Whenever we encounter a traumatic situation, we might stand up and fight. We might turn and run and flee. Or, as studies have shown, we might actually freeze when we feel that there is no hope of survival. Certainly a glass of milk or a football game is no life or death situation, although at times we might think it is. However, in the sense of our physical survival, I'm thankful that the master designer has wired our bodies with the fight, flight, or freeze response. It's certainly helpful in the smaller matters of life, and there might be that occasion in yours where it could actually save your life. But more importantly, and more than that, in a spiritual sense, I'm thankful and humbled to know that the same master designer has extended his eternal salvation to all of mankind, and that it's not conditional or subject to our body's physiological and psychological conditions. You see, the salvation that is of the Lord is greater than you or me. It's greater and more powerful than anything that we can think, say, or do. It's beyond our control. But the question for us is this, how will we choose to deal with our spiritual condition and our response to that salvation? Right now, you might be in a place where you feel like your spiritual condition is that you and God are good. It might be that you think, well, I, I don't know if I really know who God is and I don't know how I need him in my life. 
Or it might be that you really know who God is, but you don't want him in your life right now. And so you find yourself fighting back. You find yourself turning and fleeing, or you simply do nothing. When God's word and his truth shines a light on the dark places of our lives, that's when we can clearly see the dangers that eternity holds. Because sometimes when the odds are overwhelming, we neither fight nor flight. We simply freeze. And we feel as if there is no hope. Tonight as we look at the account of Jonah, I want us to consider how Jonah's response to God's calling could not overpower or overcome God's desire for his salvation to reach all nations. And because of this, there is hope for us all. We'll see how disobedience, selfishness, and even anger on the part of an ungrateful messenger could not keep God's salvation from those who would repent and submit to his will. I know that many of us are, are very familiar with the story of Jonah. It's one of the most popular stories that we tell in our children's Bible classes. And I'm sure any of them could get up here and, and tell you about the big fish, and how many days Jonah was in his belly, and the worm and the plant. But I wonder if we all too often consider it just that, a story, a fable of sorts. But I would suggest to you that we would be making a mistake if we were not to consider the historical accuracy of this account. Jesus, in his own words, would help us to affirm that. In Matthew chapter 12, in verses 38 and following, you see, Christ is faced with a great question. He's being pinned to the wall by the, by the scribes and the Pharisees, and they're asking him for a sign. And listen to his response in verse 38. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You see, if we're to dismiss the account of Jonah as just a story, then we would have to consider what we think about Jesus himself prophesying about his own resurrection. Him referring to Jonah and making account of the three days would be the same as his resurrection. So I suggest to you that in the words of Christ, we have to consider it the real account. And so tonight we want to look at Jonah. This book of Jonah is unique in the, in the writings of the prophets. It records the account of God's messenger delivering his word, not to his chosen people, but to a foreign nation, the enemy. The emphasis is really on the messenger rather than the message. And the lessons that we can learn are because of the actions of the messenger and not what he delivers. So by way of quick history, let's set the stage for this account in our text tonight. So who was Jonah? Well, we know if we look in 2 Kings in chapter 14, we kind of were introduced to Jonah there. We can see that Jonah was a prophet in the time of Jeroboam II, who reigned over Israel. And if we look at that passage, it will indicate to us that it was, it was really a pretty positive time in the history of Israel. You see, God had spared his people from ultimate elimination. But they were wearing thin. They were running down. And God saw it fit to send Jonah to be a helper and a prophet for him. And so according to his prophecy, Jeroboam would have successful campaigns in reclaiming the land for Israel. 
Jeroboam's reign began about 70 years uh, before the Israels were captured by the Assyrians, who will be the main adversary in, in our text tonight. It was approximately 50 years after Jeroboam began his reigns that the Assyrians actually moved in to conquer the Israelites. However, during most of Jeroboam's reign, the Assyrians were really preoccupied with other campaigns. They weren't bothering the Israelites at this time. And so it's during this time that we believe the account of Jonah is taking place. Evidently, God had a different plan for the people of Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrians. Yet Jonah and all of the Israelites really considered the Assyrians to be arch enemies. They were a pagan nation and their brutality and their cruelty were legendary. So with that in mind, let's jump into our text tonight in Jonah chapter 1. At the beginning of this account, we see where God is calling Jonah to carry out a message for him. As we begin here in verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now stop right there. If you think for a moment what Jonah might be thinking as God has asked him to do this, right? He's saying, but God, don't you see? All the things you have sent me to tell Jeroboam, we're having success here. I mean, we're reconquering the lands for Israel. Why would you want me to leave my homeland and go to some foreign city, one that's an enemy? Wait a minute, God. Did, did you say Nineveh? Right? I mean, don't you know of their legendary brutality? They're our enemy. What they've done to your children for centuries. Why would you send me there? God, I, I thought prophets were here in this land to be messengers for your people. Why are we doing this? And so look at his response as we pick up in verse 3. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Something's going on in Jonah's mind. It wasn't enough for him to just respond to God and say, I'm going to do nothing. I'm going to avoid what you have asked me to do. No, he takes it further. He literally turns and runs and tries to flee from the presence of God. And so we have to ask ourselves, when we're faced with the calling to do God's will, how will we respond? Do we accept it and let it rule in our hearts? Or do we simply ignore it? Or maybe when we're faced with that calling, we get up out of our place, we go down to the seaport, we look for a vessel, we get out our wallets and we pay for the fare, make sure we get a room at the lowest point of the ship and see if we can sail as far as that ship will take us to try to get away from the presence of the Lord. It's a dangerous action that Jonah has taken. It's as if he's trying to go to the place on the earth that God won't find him. You know that one place that God doesn't know about because, you know, he didn't create all of it, right? Well, that's simply not possible. And what we see next is tragic. In the following verses, in verse 4 and following, we see that uh, God begins to send his wrath on Jonah. He causes a great sea to come, uh, a storm to come upon the sea. And it's here that we realize that what Jonah has done is not only harming Jonah and taking away the message of God from the people of Nineveh, 
but it's affecting the men who are around him. His disobedience begins to, to cause a tragic situation to happen. Everything begins falling apart. The sea is, is thrown about, the storm is coming, and the ship begins to break apart. So the captain and the men, well, they devise a plan, right? They start throwing the cargo overboard. They start telling every man, hey, you pray to your God, and we'll see which one can save us first. And then as the captain goes down to the lowest part of the ship, that's where he finds Jonah. It's almost as if Jonah knew that the storm would be coming. He places himself in the bottom and the center of the ship where he might be the safest, where he would be the least affected by the roll of the ship and the waves of the storm. I wonder sometimes if we, trying to run from God's will, will try to place ourselves in the safest place in which we think he can't find us and can't get to us. It's simply not so. Look how the captain responds to Jonah in verse 6. So the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? It's almost like he's saying, Really? Are you kidding me? How can you be sleeping here like this? Haven't you seen the storm outside? In our house, and our family, we don't really condone name-calling. And I guess in some cases, like this captain here, well, maybe you just got to call it like it is. He gets Jonah out of his sleep. He says, sleeper, arise. Can't you see the rest of us? We're calling on our God and we need you to do the same. And as was their custom, the next step in their plan was to cast lots. And as you know, the lot fell on Jonah. And so the men begin interrogating Jonah as you look in verse 8. Then they said to him, please tell us for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? They want to know something about Jonah that has caused them to be in danger. So they begin to interrogate. And after Jonah tells them all that they need to know, they then say, well, Jonah, what are we going to do with you? He says, you probably just want to throw me overboard. The safest thing, the best route out of this for you is to get rid of me. The men consider that, but they take a step back. And they think for a moment, if this man's God has put this storm in our path, then if we take his life by throwing him overboard, what else is there to come from this God? Or it might be that they're holding on to their trump card. And so they consider rowing to land, and it's as if they can outrow the power of God's storm. They quickly figure out that they can't, so they give up. So the only choice for them to do as Jonah has said, and they throw him overboard. The seas are calm, but God is not done with Jonah yet. Verse 17, now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And it's here where there's a life-changing moment for Jonah. He begins to pray to God. He begins to acknowledge to God that, that, that he's ignored him. That he's gone away from his will and what he's asked him to do. He begins to cry out to God that how deep he has fallen into the ocean. And that it's only God that can save him. In verse 7 of chapter 2, when my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer went up to you and to your holy temple. Those who regarded worthless idols forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice to you. With the voice of thanksgiving, I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Jonah recognized that the salvation for his own physical well-being and for the souls that God had called him to go preach to was of God. It was of the Lord. 
And so God sees fit to give Jonah a second chance. Verse 10 and closing out chapter 2. So the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah onto the dry land. Verse, or excuse me, chapter 3 begins Jonah's second chance. Let's see here now. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. What do you think Jonah's thinking this time? The first time he, he went down to the sea, found a boat that would take him far away, paid the fare, went to the lowest part of the boat, caused all kinds of danger and havoc for the men that were with him. It looks like he might have learned his lesson. Let's see how he responds in verse 3 here. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, here's the words that God wanted him to deliver. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Can you imagine what Nineveh is thinking to those words? Here they are, the great Assyrian capital city. Great warriors, violent and brutal. And yet this man from Israel comes and says, in 40 days you will be destroyed. Somehow, some way, they knew that that word from Jonah was from his God, the God that created the heavens and the earth. And so look at their response. Verse 5, so the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And following, even the king made a decree, saying that how all the people of Nineveh and even the animals would not eat or drink in response to Jonah's message. And in verse 10, in closing out chapter 3, God's response. Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. What a different result we have this time than the first time Jonah was given an opportunity to serve God's will. Vastly different. He didn't put the people's lives in danger. He proclaimed a word to them that God would save them if they would only turn and repent and serve his God. But it's interesting as we close out in chapter 4, Jonah once again takes an unprecedented approach to this success. Chapter 4, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. He became angry at the fact that God had relented from the people of Nineveh. Can you imagine all that he's been through at this point? And he sees the success. He sees the fact that God has relented his wrath on Nineveh. Notice what he says. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? It's almost like he's saying, I knew it, God. I knew you were going to do what you said you were going to do. And these people have been freed from your wrath. It made him angry. Can you imagine? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarsus, for I knew that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. How angry do you have to be at the fact that God has saved some people, some foreign enemy nation, that you said, it's better for me to be dead, God, than to see this. I don't want to witness this. He's angry. He's selfish. And so he goes on. Then the Lord said to him, is it right for you to be angry? 
Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what become of the city. I don't know about you young parents, but uh, in our house, we kind of call that the pouty face. And with that might come the pouty chair. It's that moment when you break your kid's will and they go against what you said and they kind of get angry about it for a minute, don't they? They kind of just sit there and pout. And that's what Jonah's doing here. He's saying, I'll just go outside the city. I'll pull myself up a pouty chair and I'll just sit here and wait and see what happens to this city. He's angry. It's almost childish to see what he's doing here. But God says that he would save him one more time. He sends a plant to, to uh, come up and give him shade. I kind of relate that to what I need when I'm out in the sun. It's called SPF 1000. And so God sends the, the plant to grow up over him and he protects him from the shade. Yet the next morning, God sends a worm that devours the plant. And so there Jonah is at the end of chapter four. He's sitting there waiting and pouting to watch and see what will happen to the city. And the sun begins to beat down. It begins to tear him down. It begins to wear him down. And finally, one more time, look what Jonah says. In verse nine, then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, it is right for me to be angry, even to death. Jonah is just not a happy camper at this time. He's being selfish. He's not understanding that God's will should be extended beyond not only his chosen people, but to those of a foreign and enemy nation. And he can't stand it. Everything has him all out of sorts. But listen to how God responds. But the Lord said, you have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand and much livestock. God says, I value all souls. God says, if I'm going to ask you to carry out my will, it's because I have a reason. It's because I have a purpose for each and every one of you. Tonight, as we consider the account of Jonah, we have to ask ourselves this question. What will we do when the will of God comes calling? Are we going to stand up and fight him? Are we going to push him away and say, I don't want to be exposed. I, I don't want to have the dark places of my life with the word of God's light shining on them. Are we going to turn and run and flee? Are we going to go find a ship that moves fast and sails far and try to get away from him? Or are we going to freeze and do nothing? I would suggest to you that the option and the best option for us is to turn and to submit to his will. He has a plan for each and every one of us. And the ultimate plan that he has for each and every one of us is that he has extended his everlasting salvation. He's done that for us today under the new covenant with Christ. He's done that in sending his only begotten son. And while we were still sinners, Christ died on the cross for us. His will for us is that we would submit to that new covenant, that we would recognize that we need Jesus and we need the blood that was shed on the cross by Jesus to wash away our sins. 
we're imperfect. We don't have it all right. We can learn lessons from Jonah on not how to react to God's calling. But we can also see what God has for us might be that 120,000 people within our reach of our community could become his. Tonight we have a choice. It might be that, uh, that you've already accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. But yet you haven't been serving him in the way that he intends for you to. You haven't been giving him your all and submitting to his will. Or it might be that you're in a position where you know you need God. You need Christ and you need his blood. He's made a way for us to do that. When we hear the word of God and we believe with him with all of our heart. And we confess that Jesus Christ is the son of God before man. And we put him on in baptism, in the waters of baptism. We can see all of the benefits that we'll find in Christ. You see, when we're, when we're submerged in the waters of baptism as if we were in the likeness of his death. As he was buried in the grave, we so can be buried in the waters of baptism and come up a new person. Our sins are washed away in that watery grave and we can come up to start a new life. We can submit to his will. We can live out our lives and be encouraging to others. Tonight, the choice is yours. If you've already become a Christian and you need us to pray for you, we're willing to do that tonight. If you made the decision that you need Christ in your life and you're willing to put him on in baptism, we would like to help you with that tonight too.